Welcome to Your Own Words, a podcast that celebrates the love of reading with real people and real books, both critically acclaimed and slated. Listeners are encouraged to read along and join the journey to the libraries of friends newly discovered. This podcast may contain spoilers, feminist rants, curse words and mispronunciations of names, cities and more. Welcome to Your Own Words. I was going to say episode two. Oh, I could have done uh, that after that and then it would have been like we'd practiced. <sighs> anyway, um, so episode two, how are you? Episode two, I am good. It is a very warm day here in London. It is and warm. Soho is full. Soho is busy with full of people. humans. Too many humans. Removing layers as they walk along the road. Mm. And we're back in our dark yeah so we're hiding from the sun <laughs> hiding from the sun in our dark soundproof room which is the best place for miserable book readers to be yeah my teen goth heart is very happy down here and i think it's a uh, it's appropriate that my teen my teen goth heart is happy because i was a teen goth when i read the book we're talking about and it's today. your week it is my week it is your week and your book yeah you set the bar really really high i mean i was told i couldn't do ulysses so i went for an easier yeah, I mean, once again, thank you for not doing that. But um, you know, it'll come up. <laughs> here, here we are saying we're making a podcast that's not a literary, you know, podcast where we're. It's oh no! Like I mean, it should be critical. disclosed early on. I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, well, you, you really sound I like just, you do. I just keep going until I get to the end of a sentence, or I run out of breath, which therefore will dictate that the end of the sentence has arrived. That's normally how I go. I cannot speak anymore. Finish. Sentence over. That is my complete thought. Yeah, the end. Um, yeah, it's your week, and the good thing about this book is that we can all pronounce everything in it. Yeah. From the name of the author to the name of the people, the places and things. Yes. It's a which... very pronounceable book, which has made, has made our lives easier compared to the only last one. Time. <laughs> we haven't had to do any rehearsals. There's been no Googling of how to say Douglas. Yeah. Um, so as it's your book, let's find out a little about your reading style. Okay. Where do you like to read? How do you like to read? What does your reading world look like? Where do I like to read? Um... I like to read in bed with my dog, Bowie. That's kind of the ideal comfortable place, although it's very easy to fall asleep there. Mm -hmm. Um, So apart from that, I very much enjoy reading on, or sorry, I very much enjoy reading in coffee shops. Yep. Like little snobby coffee shops. There's a few like favorite places that I have in London. So there's, uh, shout out, um, there's Urban Baristas in Wapping, which is that one I sent you a picture of. Um, yep. It's just super cute. It looks very cute. Very cool. They play good music, which can be distracting. And then there's a place near me called um, Husk. And uh, it is my other favorite because uh, they make good coffee, of course, and it's two seconds from my house, which is great. But they also have... Is uh, this the place that sells the books? Yeah, they've got secondhand books everywhere. <laughs> so it's like coffee, books, That's, and they're, it doesn't matter what it is. It's two pounds for a paperback, just, one pound, or sorry, two pounds for a plinth, as you call them. <laughs> my favorite. And one pound for your paperbacks. That's my bank account's idea of hell. Yeah. Like, I've gone in already to spend money on coffee, and then yeah. I've come out buying a whole new library. It is super dangerous. But the only thing, like, I do like reading, I like reading in public. I don't know why, it's just, you tune out the, you know, craziness of London. It's nice. Or, you know, you're on a plane and it gives you something to do. Um, the only problem with, like, coffee shops and stuff like that, I do like kind of getting out of the house and being around people. But um, it's very hard to listen to music. Yeah, and we were talking about this the other mm. day. Like, music, no music, silence, yeah. classical music. Yeah. So I have a reading a playlist on Spotify, um, amazingly titled "For Reading," which is uh, invented. That's creative that creative name. spirit coming out Thank of you, you again. Thank you. <laughs> um, but it has like a lot of classical music. We were talking about this the other day, but it's got a lot of like Max Richter mm. and like Nils Fromm. Um, so a lot of like modern composers, Sigur Rós. Basically, anything with lyrics I can't understand and therefore be distracted by. <laughs> yeah, what was so that like sing in Icelandic by all means, <laughs> and that's like 
beautiful atmospheric yeah. background noise, but then there's also some like lute funeral music yeah. from the 1800s that I sometimes like to put on. Does it depend what style of book you're reading? It doesn't really. Okay. It do, I just you, you could go all the way and sort of match creates. up your Shakespeare with your like, with my Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment and your Jane Austen with your you know yeah. <laughs> you could score score, score your, your own your, book. yeah that would um, be. I mean that is something I would totally do because I'm obnoxious like be that brilliant but I tend to read as we'll find out kind of dark <laughs> books I don't read a lot of like lighthearted romps. <laughs> So they get a lot of eighties techno. No, so the music that I listen to tends to generally work. I think the most like lighthearted stuff I have on that playlist um, would be some of the score from La La Land, mm-hmm. but um, mostly it's pretty dark and cinematic, which is usually matches up to most most of what I enjoy reading. <laughs> womp womp, sadness. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh no, you just painted such a nice picture, and then. And then reality hit. Um, <laughs> what about, but this is something we've spoken about a lot as well, books that you are embarrassed that you haven't read, whether they're classics or just bestsellers or, you know, things that you really should have read that you haven't. Mm, all of them, <laughs> um, basically. So, now, now, come so along. So here's where we're going to have, you know, listeners will be like, they're either going to be Bex or Allison. <laughs> so obviously you went to school English literature. Yeah. And I've, creative I've read some. You've read like a book or two. Um, <laughs> and I have definitely read a book or two, but I haven't read like 90% of those books <laughs> that everyone should read. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, you know what? I'm not ashamed of it. Um, I haven't read any Jane Austen. I have read your favorite, Charles Dickens, you know, (laughs) I haven't read any Joyce. I haven't read any Hemingway. I haven't read like Slaughterhouse Five. I haven't read, um, Beck is (laughs) putting her head in her hands at the minute. I don't know why I'm here. You should be excited because I get to still discover those things, right? What's but it, we, like Catcher in the Rye? Like, I haven't read, like, well, these books. I'll often be there, sat there, like, quoting things from books. Like, of course, this happened in such and such. I'm like, like, yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. totally. I wish, like, last week when we were talking about Lolita and you're, like, chucking in some stuff Oh, yeah. Spoiler alert, I haven't read any of the books <laughs> that were covered in reading Lolita in Tehran at all. I haven't read But you passed it off Lolita really well. Or anything. Like, Thank you. Yeah, you did a really like, yeah, good job. yeah, that book is really divisive, only because I've heard people say that. Um, so I fake like, it really Lili- well. <laughs> Lolita's great. You should get on that. But um, is there, Are there any ones that you think I actually really want to and I'm looking forward to reading that so as a many. classic? There's so many. I think, like, um, I want to know what all the fuss is with um, Catcher in the Rye. Mm-hmm. And just the... You'd really like Catcher in the Rye. The pop culture reference, yeah, obviously. Really we like all know, like, the asshole that killed John Lennon read it and yeah. was really obsessed with it there's you know and um, same with Slaughterhouse-Five oh, Slaughterhouse-Five is a, just, just a sheer work of brilliance great it's not my favourite of his books okay <laughs> just to chuck in I'm like yeah I've read that but what you want to do is go into his back catalogue and bring out Mother Night which is one of the most extraordinary works of literature ever created okay plus it's shorter so you can oh. like flick through that first in like a day nice. and then jump into Slaughterhouse-Five and spend the rest of the week just in a Vonnegut world okay That's yeah I, I think that those are kind of the ones that I'm actually like excited about mm. as far as the classics that I should read that I'm like dragging my feet on I think Probably, um, I need some Austin. Yeah, you do, hundred percent. And you made me one of the books you made me buy that day. <laughs> yeah. United was Pride and Prejudice, yeah. which is on my shelf. Go so. find a really large tree on a sunny day. Right. Just sit under just it until you have read that book and Fine. absorbed its essence. It's stunning. I will. Um, so I apologize. I don't know why. I don't think there's like a specific reason because I've always really enjoyed reading, but I think music took over a lot and I didn't like I in high school I read a ton including this book and in my 20s I think I was busy trying to start bands or date them so I didn't (laughs) uh, I didn't have my nose in a ton of books um so I don't know maybe I just like didn't get hit like hit by that classic bug although I did one of my favorite books that I it was a strong candidate for this was uh, Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, yeah, um, which I did read in high school yeah, yeah. and was Wonderful like book. obsessed with and have reread and obviously seen the amazing Hitchcock film. And, yeah, like that's when people ask what book would you recommend, that's always 
100% heavy with oh, Rebecca. It's beautiful. So, you know, I, it's not that I haven't read anything, but yeah, I'm very, very behind. <laughs> um, but we'll get there. Hopefully, we'll there's just, just we'll too just, many books. We'll keep going to bookshops, and I'll keep sending you out with six books. <sighs> They'll just start do. showing up at the post, and be like, "Okay, <laughs> fine, I'll do it." I mean, it, I'm assuming that we'll actually get through some with this podcast. Oh like, yeah, surely. Totally. Like, I'm actually surprised that the first yeah, couple so far, guests, no one has said Jane Austen. No one has chosen a classic. Dickens, yet. or so. I'll, I'll, I'm interested to see. Uh, you know what we're forced to read. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of them are like no. Everyone picked no. <laughs> but you can all have great expectations. I'm cool with Miss Havisham, but mm-hmm. I'm just I'm, I'm not getting into Bleak House. I I do not have the energy to I mean, scroll I've through the 600 pages of that Pinch book. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I think a lot of when you read or how you read or what you read is to do with the times in your life and, mm. and where you were at. So I went through a mad stage where I was just reading sort of the Beat era guys because I've got to them through poetry oh, yeah, and it was just Kerouac one. and Burroughs I've and Bukowski and Bukowski. I'm just going to list people oh, and no. Alison's going to be like, I don't know who you're talking about. I saw Mickey Rourke play <laughs> Charles Bukowski Well, so what Barfly. I said to you the other day, um, Requiem for a Dream and Last Exit to Brooks, Last Exit Brooklyn was a massive contender for my first book as well because mm. I adore Hubert Silver Jr. He's just the most gorgeous writer. Um, but I got so I got really lost in those guys for a long time, yeah. and then I wasn't reading the classics. I wasn't reading the sort of you know the great canon of literature at all. Yeah. And then I suddenly realised that it had been a long time since I picked up Hemingway or Orwell or like yeah. Austin, Brontes, like all of these people that you just kind of they're there and because we know they're there and we know that they're brilliant we kind of forget sometimes to pick them up yeah. I mean then we get lost in these worlds of you know new new voices which actually aren't that new anymore but. I think I had so I had a time where most of the reading I was doing probably in my early to mid 20s was actually a lot of like memoir a lot mm, of like music yeah. biographies and autobiographies so I read a ton of that if I was reading um, and even recently, even up to like Amanda Palmer's book, which you haven't read yet, so I have not it. read that. That's true. Um, but I've read a lot, a lot of that, yeah. just because I kind of love being inspired by real people, also. But then, then the other thing is, I have this obnoxious bratty quality where I don't trust things that everybody else is doing. Oh yeah, totally. 100%. So Harry Potter came out. I did not... I hate Harry Potter. No comment. (laughs) I did not read any of it. I don't... I I hate being the bandwagon jumper. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, those things are generally not always, of course, you know, let's not talk about Fifty Shades, but like... (laughs) That they're, they're normally the renowned for a reason. For a reason. Yeah. But I just, yeah. I just. No, but I have exactly so, which is why I ended up in sort of all of these beat Nicky blokes who, right. you know, with, like, with a very specific kind of life and way of looking at life, which was I was more attracted to at that time because it wasn't this the voice of the classics, which you, you kind of know through osmosis. You mm. just, you grow up with it, whether you see adaptations or whatever it is it's around you it's quoted and everything from advertisement to news broadcasting it's like you can't get away from the damn stuff like yeah. Shakespeare's all up in his grill all the time and <laughs> everyone else is and it's like sometimes you're just like I just want to go and read about the voice of a misogynistic alcoholic man like sat in a warehouse in America speak to me Bukowski yeah. tell me what's going on yeah. have some more of that hammer right that's, that's what I wanted <laughs> Yeah. And then so, you realise that you're being a pretentious, obnoxious... A hundred percent. ...arsehole, yeah. and Jane Austen is and a you're genius. Missing out. And you're missing out exactly. on this phenomenal canon of, of work. It's, um, That's yeah. exactly right. So be less arrogant, people, and just chill the fuck she out. She says, well, looking me dead in the <laughs> eyes. <laughs> I look forward to sitting beside you when we have you guests instead of across from you. I'm well, feeling you, very judged. You, you wait till I go on my... You have not read Shakespeare if you've only seen the film Romeo and Juliet. No, no, I've read Band Romeo Dragon, and Juliet. Because that pisses me off. We ha- what, to be fair, we had to read that in ninth grade, so. But <laughs> well, I've, yeah, I've, I've read, read Shakespeare. I've read Shakespeare. It's like, have you read Shakespeare? I mean, have I was a teen seen... goth. I've read Macbeth, okay? <laughs> okay, well, you, you can have I can that. start. Let's start I quoting mean, I, right now. Yeah. <laughs> first line Just... is the first witch. And that's who I wanted to play. That's all. <laughs> 
you just, you saved yourself there. You're like, yeah. I have actually read the book. Yeah. Um, so that brings us on to your book, which is Hey Nostradamus, yeah. Douglas Copeland. Douglas Copeland. Which was the only one I hadn't read. Really? Or like one of like two. I haven't read the, the lot of the new ones. Um, but yeah, I hadn't read this one for some reason because... Well, lucky for me. Yeah. So when you said it, I was like, I know, I obviously know, I know that book. Yeah. I know the name. Why have I never read that one? I don't know. I have no answer. That's not something we're going <laughs> to work out. <laughs> it might take a slightly longer period of therapy to understand why I couldn't get here, but I couldn't, and now I have. Um, but yeah, he's one of your favourite writers. He is. Yeah, Douglas Copeland. I discovered him in high school. I couldn't tell you. I, it was probably grade 11 or 12. Yeah, you can tell I'm Canadian by referring to my schooling that way. So the last we don't know what you mean exactly. I don't know what your school system is either. Um, but even Americans don't say grade eleven or twelve. Yeah, so I was you know probably sixteen, seventeen, um, and I just came across it in the high school library. Um, I think it might have been that I had to do a book project on a Canadian author, mm-hmm. and unfortunately. The, the pool is a lot smaller to choose from. Um, obviously, we've got Atwood. We've got we've got yeah. brilliant writers. But, um, you know, the, the pool is a bit smaller. So the first book of his that I read was Miss Wyoming, which is a, this bizarre story of this, like, once famous actress, uh, Susan Colgate, I think her name is. And she she's trying to revive her career, and she ends up in a plane crash, and she ends up being the only person that survives. And, like climbs out of the wreckage and just wanders and then like finds an empty house and like moves into it and nobody everyone assumes she's dead so she kind of starts over it's a very strange book and I just could not believe it I'd never read anything like it I I think they refer to him as postmodern it was just a very different way of writing that I'd never read before and it felt really current and really fresh and super relatable uh, and so the you know the minute I was done that I just whipped through everything else he read so I'm, I couldn't tell you the exact minute I read this book I think it came out in 2003 which would have been my yeah. my second to last year of high school but I'm not sure exactly when I picked up this book for the first time but this is the I, I love him and I've read everything he's ever written um, and it's hard to choose a favorite but this this one kind of hit me in the guts I think slightly more than the rest my first was Shampoo Planet, yeah. which I've never read again, and I must have read when I was about 15, but I remember very, very clearly reading a passage, the passage I don't remember, but I remember reading the passage, and I remember having such an emotional reaction to it and having mm-hmm. to close the book for a moment, which I think was probably the first time I'd ever had that reaction to a book. And I remember that. I I could not tell you what the bit of the passage was about. I could not tell you where it came in the book. But I remember very clearly reading that book, getting to that point and thinking, oh, that just got me for the first time. You have to reread it and and tell me what it is. I always think, I've thought this loads of times because I've obviously still got it. And sometimes I look at it and I think, would I remember, like, would I get to that point and have that? reaction or would I just not find it or would something else get to me like was it something so specific about my life then and what was how was it so specific to that moment which is maybe why I can't even remember what the passage was anymore Hmm. I don't know so I mean there's part of me that kind of doesn't want to because I don't want to take away that thing of right if it doesn't happen again yeah I have this memory of this book and being affected by it for god knows what reason but as a 15 year old I was affected by it and I kind of don't want to go back and just be like, yeah, it's all right. Or, you know, just not right. have that reaction or be waiting to have that reaction and then not having it. But I, I, it's a book that I remember very, very clearly reading for the first time. And I, I don't always remember the books that I've read, but that, that one is, I remember where I was, I remember what time it was. It was, yeah. That's a good book. Anyway, that's not the one we're doing, so let's move on. Let's talk about all these other books. Yeah. (laughs) Douglas Copeland has written some other books. Yep. Um, A few. But, yeah, this one was um, released in 2003 and became his most critically acclaimed book um, to date then. I mean, I don't know... Oh, to date then. Since then. (laughs) Okay. Um, Which... (laughs) Really? 
Um, <laughs> which fun reading articles about. Um, so it centres on a fictional high school shooting in 1988 in suburban Vancouver, which is his hometown, and the impact of the massacre on four characters, Cheryl, Jason, Heather and Reg, who account from their individual perspectives, the direct or indirect effects of the shooting. The novel is built around four first-person narratives of these characters, and as they intertwine, examines themes of love, sex, religion, and grief. Copeland began writing the novel following a tour of 40 cities in America, during which he said he had experienced the collective sorrow of the states following the shootings in Columbine. He started researching the events in late 2001 and expressed his conf- concern that the killers at the Columbine High School massacre, which had taken place in 1999, had received more focus than the victims. And so in Nostradamus, we see unfold the impact of tragedy on the victims rather than looking at the shooters themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, who we really only glimpse at. He also had an art installation which explored the same topic, featured scenes from high school shootings and included 3D versions of the kneeling figure which you have on my your book. I don't have on mine, but it was on the original um, cover of the book, which was called Tropical Birds. The book opened from a quote with a quote from the Corinthians, which was taken from an engraving on one of the tombstones of one of the victims of the Columbine shooting, um, which is a really beautiful quote. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Which I, when I read this, and I read it in like a day, but I read that, and I literally just put the book down, went to make some coffee, and came back. (laughs) It's like, I need a moment to get into this book. (laughs) It's sort of already bashed me around the shoulders a little bit with, you know, it's it's letting you know before you started that you are going to be moved by this. Yeah. Which is quite a brave thing to do on the first page of your book. But yeah, I I just, I had to go and sit down. There's a lovely quote from Ali Smith, who is a brilliant writer. Have you read read any Ali Smith? Probably not, no. Um, It's all right, she's not a classic. (laughs) She's she's a, a really great writer. It's a really lovely quote. God, it was a pleasure to read. Clever, affecting, effortlessly conceptual. The current landscape, the mindless and endless landslide of mass culture versus individual vulnerability. No one sees or gets to the heart of them quite like Copeland. Mm. Which is something we've spoken quite a lot about in how he writes and why we're drawn to that language and how he uses it. I think she sort of gets to the nugget of that. He has this, uh, this way of writing that, you know, I haven't read him in a while. So picking this book up and like within the first few pages, I just, you know, kind of sighed contentedly. It's like it's like visiting an old friend or speaking to an old friend yeah. because it's it's a very Copeland way of writing. Like yeah. nobody else that I've read speaks the way he does. It's kind of effortless. It doesn't try too hard. It's really simple. And it's funny because most books that I love or that I would say that I love are kind of like overtly poetic, mm-hmm. like really lyrical prose, kind of like descriptions that yeah. make you clutch yourself. They just drip off the page. That's what I am obsessed with usually. And this is so stark in comparison, the way that he writes. He he has this kind of, you know, I said to you this sort of, staccato Mm. way of this rhythm, this rhythmic way of writing. He lists things like really random objects, like, you know, just random everyday household objects that somehow gives them meaning. Mm. I I, I don't articulate things as as well as you do, I feel. But I think there's something in his simplicity, which I allows you to build your own world around it. Mm. Like the way that he doesn't sort of drip feed you this um, almost kind of theatrical dressing of a stage. He doesn't do that. He leaves the stage as completely bare as possible and then almost gives you a box of props and it's kind of like, make it. That's yeah. kind of what he does. Yeah, it's like you... everything is in place for you. I'm putting everything in place and I'm leaving you to build your world around it and to let you and it hold yourselves there together, 
which is, I think, really, really difficult to do. Yeah. It's really easy to say he's got a very simple... And a lot of the articles I was reading were saying that he has quite a juvenile way of writing. And I just thought that's so underplaying how hard it is to be sparse and delicate and really remove all of the extra crap and just give you the bare minimum and tell you that that's the world. Yeah. That's a really hard thing to do. Well, have you noticed... He doesn't describe his characters. No. You don't know what hair color they have. You don't know anything about them. And I know from my slight forays into creative writing, that's always the thing I think of first. Mm. Visualize my characters and then I want to make them real. Who is your person? Where are they going? What are they doing? What What do do they they look like? What are they wearing? What are they... And he... He hates answers, this man. He never gives you answers to anything. (laughs) Like, it's... And that normally would annoy me And in most other books. If I get to the end of a chapter, I get to the end of a segment, I get to the end of the damn book and I don't have an answer. And I'm like, what happened? Yeah. But with this, I it almost kind of makes you feel a little bit safer in it. That you don't always have to have that like finite knowledge of something. You can kind of exist in the in-between. Yeah. And then whilst you're there, you're a little bit more open to the what's and the why's whereas when you just have this is how it goes it kind of closes you down and I would have been so much sadder I think at the end of this book if I was given the answer. that finite answer because it would have taken away my hope my possibility to grow my possibility to explore in the way that the characters do as well he opens that up for you yeah. by being really simplistic and not not giving you answers and not telling you how it is. It it feels harder, I think, to um, imagine going on that journey, not knowing you're going to get an ending, but actually when you get to the ending, feeling so much more satisfied that you still kind of in your mind have a way to go. I feel like I held these characters at the end of this book more than... I I have done with other people. Yeah, I think this one's going to be a bit tricky to discuss because... It's one of those books where the ending mm, yeah. just hits you. Yeah, oh, I cried all the way through that last Yeah, yeah. That, that last page or two, yeah. it ties the whole thing up in such a remarkable way. And it's not something we're really going to be able to discuss without literally giving away, yeah. you know, the ending, which is not something we're ever going to try to do on this on this podcast even though we we do hope that people are reading along and already know, and and hopefully so you can fill in the blanks yourself. If yeah. not, go read the book. Yeah, uh, Douglas, if you want to give us some royalties, it's fine. <laughs> That's great. Um, for, for a book that came out in two thousand three, <laughs> yeah. there's a sudden spike in sales. Hook us up. <laughs> um, what I really and the thing is, it's not necessarily the story itself, or even the journey of any specific character. It's more the book. The, the way the book takes you on its own journey. Yeah. If that, I mean, that sounds a bit wanky, but there's kind of these themes that run throughout. So, I mean, we, we go back to the book, just it's told in four parts, as you know, the synopsis mentioned. So, first, it's Cheryl, who is a teenage girl, uh, secretly married to her boyfriend, Jason. This is no spoiler because it's literally in the synopsis and in the first few pages um, she is shot and and dies in the school shooting. And the last thing, she's doodled something on her um, school binder that, you know, she reveals was just, she wasn't even really thinking of it at the time. So she, she basically tells, everything's told in first person. She tells it from wherever she's sitting beyond where she was before. You know, it doesn't identify itself as heaven or anywhere else. She doesn't even really know where she is. She's just in, she refers to it as this other place. So she says, oh, it was just a scribble that I scribbled on a book, but it kind of becomes the theme of the novel, which is God is nowhere. God is now here. And throughout the book, they kind of go back to that point that people made a really big deal um, after the shooting that that, they, you know, attached a ton of meaning to that and made her the kind of like poster girl. And I think she's actually based on there was a girl who was killed in Columbine. Forgive me for not um, thinking ahead to to look her up. But there was a, a girl that unfortunately died in that incident in real life. And um, I believe it was because she said she believed in God. So he kind of touched on that. And and throughout the book, each character 
in their own way is forced to confront how they feel about religion and spirituality and what happens after death. And it's not overtly about Christianity or anything very specific, but in one way or another, everyone has to kind of confront that. So that's one massive theme that runs through the book, which is another reason I'm not sure why I chose it. I don't have any particular belief. I jury's still out for me. So for me to pick a book that, or to pick up on this book, especially when I was a teenager and like, you know, listening to Marilyn mm. Manson and, and like being like really rebellious and thinking, you know, was saying all sorts of nonsense about religion that I would, you know, no longer necessarily say. It's interesting that I, I love this book so much considering it is, there's a massive religious thread that runs through it. And then I think the other theme that runs through it that possibly explains why it hit me at that time in my life is that you never fully know somebody else's inner world. Like each of these characters has some sort of secret that they're keeping from those around them. And each of these characters deals with people judging them or taking advantage of them in certain situations. And and especially the way it ends, which <laughs> we can't give away. I mean, throughout the book, basically Reg is the final character and that's, um, that's Jason's father, who is uh, what you would basically call a religious zealot to a, an insane fault, to the point where he drives everyone in his life away from him. And in the end, there is this sort of you you basically hate him throughout the whole book. He's a very, oh, yeah, he's a dick. He's a horribly Not deeply a unlikable character that the things that he comes out with you cannot even believe. And you know, his own wife takes matters into her yeah. own hands in a way that had me cheering <laughs> yeah, when it yeah, happened. Absolutely. Um but he was a very domineering man, a religious zealot, as I said to the point that he he wound up alone in the end because he alienated everybody in his family and around him. And there is this transformation, you know, suddenly in the end you do see him in a different way. And it's, mm. it just ties that all in so perfectly is that you you can never possibly fully know someone and fully know what they're dealing with. And I think as a teenager reading that book, even if I wasn't conscious of that message at the time, I think that really did strike a massive chord. Because when you're a teenager, you're convinced that your inner life is extraordinarily deep uh, and that nobody could possibly understand you, uh, nor should they try. They could never, you know, fully comprehend your your deep love of Marilyn Manson and your deep need <laughs> to move out of the middle of nowhere um, country house that you live in and move to the big city where people will get you, which was my experience. So I, when I first started reading it, in Cheryl's section and she's like dead and shot. I thought that was really going to annoy me. I thought yeah. like, ugh, I, I can't be asked to read about a 15 year old who's dead and sat in heaven, like telling us something <laughs> wise. I literally, I was so ready to just like not want to read that section at mm -hmm. all. And I thought I was going to find it really hard. And I did find it a bit hard, but I found it hard because I was doing that in my head. Yeah. Going, I'm not going to want to read this. But by the time I got to the end, I found that the God is nowhere, God is now here thing, which I then was just thinking about throughout the whole book. Yeah. And he does a brilliant thing with it. He doesn't ram it down your throat in any way. It just At sort all. of casually appears. But what I liked about it was it, it ends up being the most ironic statement in the whole thing because God is nowhere, God is now here. God is this omnipotent, all-knowing character of all things and no one knows anything and as you're <laughs> reading you don't really know anything because there's so many so many secrets and so many things that need to be held in so many different ways for so many people and just when you think you've worked out who this character is or who this person is or what this story is you don't and so this idea that god is here doing his thing somewhere is it, you just sort of suddenly feel like well no one knows anything yeah. actually and it's quite, there's, there was something quite comforting in that as you go through and all these secrets are revealed. The actual, the fact that everyone has secrets becomes quite comforting in itself, I think, by the time you get to the end of the book. Whereas at the beginning, it's like, oh, you know, she's pregnant, she's married to a thing, blah, blah, blah. And I'm in like typical 
yeah. you know, narrative for any sort of bad teen film. But that also makes sense because you're being told that part by a exactly. teenager. Exactly, yeah. So they're... Yeah. So it should be annoying. That's, it, yeah. Because <laughs> I mean, teenagers are annoying. That's her whole inner world. And, and you're thinking, inner world. oh my God, yeah. you got married at 15 because yeah. you wanted to have sex. Like, yeah, I know, God. right? Oh. But she's 15 and that's exactly. her whole world. And that's what I, when I was first reading it, I hadn't clicked that in my head. I was just like, I'm reading this thing about this girl and like, that's annoying and blah, blah, blah. It's all so predictable and it's all so teenage and I can't be asked with that. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until much later, and I, I, I think towards the end of Heather's and then Reg's, where I suddenly realised that I wasn't being told the story of these people in a predictable way. I was being told their story by them. And that isn't predictable. Like That that wasn't predictable. Yeah, because they don't have the insight because of, they a, don't, of an all-seeing... Yeah. Exactly. So God is God is not here yet ever. <laughs> he never comes on down. <laughs> um, but never and that's, explain yourself. Yeah, that's the kind of the great irony of it. You're told within the first few pages that everything is cool now because God is here, and God knows everything and everything's going to be all right. And you get to the end and you're like, well, no one was ever all right. No one ever knew anything. Everyone had all these secrets. And I'm not sure what the end of this book is in terms of like what is its last sentence i don't know i have to work that out for myself and no one's going to come and let me know mm-hmm. there's no answer it, it's the that great irony of the thing which becomes it's supposed to be in for um a lot of the characters and the communities after the shooting becomes this like meaning to it this safety thing of oh god is now here and like oh that's so powerful yeah. and but once again it's just like oh gosh we we just really from episode one, we're just diving into really <laughs> treacherous, dangerous waters. Um, I think the whole idea of religion. <laughs> you want to do the whole yeah. idea of religion yeah. on I'm episode two? Yeah. Wow. Listen, we talked about racism in the first one, so why <laughs> why stop now? I and I'm not saying anything controversial. I don't think, but obviously, the root of religion and the reason people rely on it so heavily. Sorry, one of the reasons. Uh, I certainly don't want to insult anyone, but is is that search for meaning in mm-hmm. things in life and that search for comfort? Because the idea that you die and you burn out and you're yeah nothing and the the whole thing was pointless yeah. is absolutely terrifying. Yeah. So I don't care what religion it is that provides you a lovely yeah you know cushion for yourself. And I'm not saying that in a in a derogatory way at all. I kind of wish that I had something. I don't like I said, jury's out. I don't yeah. I don't have any concept and it terrifies me so I just basically avoid thinking about it. Um, <laughs> that's that's my coping mechanism. but it's the same thing. It's like people in the middle of a yeah. crisis looking for meaning in anything they can yeah, find. Yeah, absolutely. and that's what they've chosen in this case. yeah. And we do that everywhere. and they and all of the characters do this throughout. They all do it throughout and then you as a reader, you also kind of do, you try and tag on to whatever the thing is. So with Cheryl, her relationship with Jason was obviously that that big thing in her life which gave her sanctity. And then for Jason, it's kind of that sitting and writing in his van and, like, that's where he goes and finds his peace. And then with Heather, the animals and the relationships with, with like, that, the characters that they create is their piece as a couple yeah you know so everyone has their little moments of peace and you kind of tag into them as a reader and then where you actually end up as a reader is exactly where Cheryl started kind of being in a limbo in a nowhere and not really knowing anything yeah and that's exactly where the reader ends up so you just kind of end up going on this full circle of we're all trying to find that sanctity when whatever the madness or the chaos or the casual mayhem is in our lives, <laughs> we try and find that place. And it, like, it might be you going and having a coffee shop in, with your book, like yeah. that moment of sanctuary. Yeah. With, realistically, you get to the end and we still don't really have the answers. We're just doing our best to get through. Yeah. And that's kind of, it's where you begin and it's where you end, but then you're always hoping that at some point someone's going to say, here's the golden ticket, it's all fine. And they don't. <laughs> and that's... Still waiting. There's something which I quite like about that. Yeah. There's something that I find quite appealing in that. It's reality. And I think that's what I've always loved about this author. I actually read... No, I didn't. Did I watch an interview with him? I listened to a podcast? I can't remember. It was only a few days ago, and I can't remember where I heard it. But he, in some type of interview setting, spoke about his... 
his way of writing and how he doesn't abide by any of these kind of rules, which I'm sure you're familiar with as a master in writing. That's what it is. You get to call yourself a master now, right? Master <laughs> sure, of writing. Um, where, you know, there's, he said something about there's been books written about how to write the perfect yeah. book. He's like, you know, by this point in time, and, and I'm basically directly quoting him, so forgive me, but he, uh, you know, says, by this point in the story, your character should be well into their third he's act, etc. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, I think that's a the most uncreative and horrible mm -hmm. way of, of writing anything, and I hope I never write a book like that. He's like, life doesn't occur yeah. like that. Um, he referred to, I believe he referred to it as lateral. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. these storylines that they don't, go up and peak and then go down into this wonderful conclusion. They just carry on and then somebody else's story is going yeah. on at the same time and it intersects with this and, and then it just you, continues you might on. drop out of that life. Like you might you might end up not knowing, you know, you might move away or you, you your friendship breaks down, whatever it is. You don't necessarily find out everyone's whole story. Yeah. And that's what I quite liked about this. Like I always when I got to the end, I was like, there must be some more pages. <laughs> and they've fallen I'm out. like, wherever the other and there weren't, I was like, oh, that's good. Well like well done. Because that that is life. And I think like I was saying to you last week when I, I struggled for a long time to read fiction mm -hmm. or I just didn't want to read fiction. I found that sort of like here's some characters, here's the beginning, here's the middle, here's the denouement, here's your climax, blah blah blah. I found that predictability of where my story was going to go and how it was going to get there just quite difficult to get my head around because it didn't seem to resemble an emotional journey like in real life or a relationship journey like any of these things like that isn't how it goes it's not very a b and c whereas i could get out of very sort of modernist contemporary poetry this kind of weird <laughs> jumping around of life which forced you to explore so many different things in so many different ways at the same time and I, I that related to me so much more in exactly that way of I wasn't living this very beginning middle end life because no one is you know I'm, yeah. I'm not I'm not dead yet so I literally haven't lived a beginning <laughs> middle end life um, and I just found it quite difficult to get into this world of fiction with you know your, your characters and they've got your blonde hair and then you've got your woman with the baby and like whatever it was just these are the people this is what they look like this is what they do this is their beginning this is their story the end job done yeah and I think that's why and and maybe when I was reading Shampoo Planet I got a same a similar thing from it because I certainly wasn't reading a lot of fiction then so I don't know why I picked him up mm. but like, there's something that I find quite comforting in the fact that I almost feel like this book could have four more chapters and come to a nice resolute little tied knot bubble. I'm sure that could happen, but I'm so glad it doesn't. Yeah. That that gives me comfort. Yeah. No, I fully agree. The other reason I probably really liked him when I discovered him was, you know, up until that that point, you're you're mostly reading stuff that you've had to read in school, unless you've discovered. I mean, I was reading what like before that a lot of like R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike, you know, these teen horror authors. So this kind of fantasy world. Mm -hmm. This was, I think, the first book I read. Well, not this book, but this author was the first author I read where I felt like, oh, this is so current. Yeah. This is cut from today's newspaper. I mean, in this book's quite case, literally, it, quite yeah. literally it is. Yeah. And he has this pop art way of writing, um, this kind of uncanny ability to tap into cultural phenomena and kind of build narratives around them and create these places that feel like places you have been. And sometimes you have. I mean, obviously, a lot of his books are set in Canada. And so mm. I feel this, on one hand, sense of national pride, uh, which I'm not generally prone to, if I'm being honest, or I wasn't, especially, you know, when I was younger. I've actually become far more patriotic now that I don't live in Canada anymore. Um, than I ever was then because I was resentful and I wanted to leave. Um, but now, you know, in hindsight, I, I, I'm not going back. But, you know, yeah. I read something like this and I hear him talk about how how vast the landscape is. Mm. Like, what is it? There's some scene where he's, is it Jason, wandering yeah. in the night, like, in you know, the, the nearest house is far. Yeah, and, yeah. It's, and I can see that because yeah. that's where I grew up. I mean, not in Vancouver, but in Canada. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, in London... 
<laughs> you don't get that. And Fields the, as far as the, the, the roads see. here are so narrow, and yeah. you know, everything there, even in a city, is just wider and bigger and taller and you know vast. And so there's this familiarity to it, but not even just the natural landscapes. The way he describes, you know, not in this book, but in others, like giant department stores, which don't really exist here, and the fluorescent lighting in them, and the the colors of things, like mm. everything feels without being that drippy lyrical prose, you can see it because he touches on these little things that just paint that picture for you in your head. Yeah. There's definitely something about reading literature of any any genre when it speaks about places and things that you know. It, it's almost like being in a lullaby. It's like mm. that comforting thing of... I know what that is. I know what you're saying. I know those slang words. I know the voice you're using. I know what you're describing. And I don't really need you to describe it to me. Yeah. But it's giving me that very sort of safe, I know where you I am, here home. I am, I'm at home, and I can just flow with you. Yeah. And then you can just kind of go through it. like. But his. But the thing is, he, he couples that, that sense of familiarity and this kind of very modern, very on the nose. And obviously, you know, Generation X was his big breakthrough mm. first novel that, you know, was about that generation post baby boomers and well, what's left for us now in this world. And it was so poignant at the time. I think it came out in 1990. But he always couples that on the nose kind of cultural commentary with really bizarre absurdist mm -hmm. scenarios yeah. in almost every book. I mean, I can't remember the details of every single book, but I mean, Girlfriend in a Coma, wacky fantasy land, <laughs> Player One, like apocalyptic. Yeah. You know, this one drifts off to some weird places. So there's always this, this bizarre combination of something so hyper-realistic and so modern and so current and something completely mad. Yeah. So there's these touches of this kind of post-apocalyptic thing, this dystopian thing, which I love. And then at the same time, there's touches of, you know, McDonald's and mm, yeah. Staples Business Depot and <laughs> and all of these things that I grew up. That's a background to yeah. my childhood. It's, it's and, the most and it's still simplistic. there. You know? And then I think from that, it's like these really simple things. Mad shit happens in simple times. It's like you don't Put that need on a t-shirt. <laughs> you don't need this crazy dystopian world, especially the I mean what the hell is going on in the world, but it <laughs> it like literally it's so like you turn on the TV and it's like what the all the time. Like mad shit just happens and it happens in simple places on simple days with simple things when nothing else is going on. When you're walking down the street to go and buy some blue roll from Tesco mad shit will happen yeah. and that's kind of what he does mm -hmm. he's like here's the like backbone of the most normal Vancouver Canadian life which I know nothing about but I'm going to assume that's what he's doing yeah um, the, you know everything is in place school is in place parents firemen policemen staples McDonald's supermarket all of those things you'd expect to be in place are in place it's a normal boring as fuck town oh and here's some mad shit yeah and it's He's the point I think there is that you don't need to have apocalypse and nuclear wars and sci-fi alien spaceships or people living in computer games or whatever mad dystopian stuff you can come up with. You can just be living your normal life and one day or one moment things just go wrong and that's hard and it has an effect, and then maybe your life is never the same again, and that actually is a dystopia. That, for Jason, is a dystopia. Absolutely. Like, he doesn't need no mad world built around him. <laughs> I don't know why that sounds like I was going to burst into song. He um, don't need no mad world. world. Uh, he's literally, we meet him in the bank, and he's in the bank, and someone looks at him, and he just knows that his whole life is known to that person. Mm -hmm. And his life has become that dystopian story because he has nothing left because one simple day he got up in the morning and he did a simple thing. He went to school and then his whole life was a mess. Yeah. And all of these things are still in place. All of your boring backbone of just life is still life. there. The yeah. bank's there, the shop's still there, the school's still there. But his life is now this horrifically sad, 
grey world, which is he ever going to get back? I mean, he like he's left it so far behind that, you know, and that's I think that's the beauty of this novel. Really, it's anyone anyone gets up in the morning and does these things. It's literally the story of so many sitcoms. TV shows, Dawson Creek episodes, whatever it is, it's yeah. been done a thousand times. And that's almost the beauty of using it because it's like, here it is again, here's the story, here's the school, here's the high school, here are the kids, boom. Yeah, unfortunately, quite yeah. literally, boom, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it reflects that completely. And in, in, I think now going back and reading it much later, obviously now, yeah. it does reinforce and like the, the horrific tragedy of shootings in America happening all the time. So as I was reading this, I was thinking, God, he must have been so impacted when Columbine happened. And now we're reading it 15 years later. Where that's happening. And it's happening day. all the time. And I was just reading it thinking, why is this destruction and this tragedy still happening? And it's not happening in a book. And almost his, the dystopia that he's created from the impact of that is now so minutiary to what's happening constantly in the world that you almost sort of sit there reading it thinking, yeah, well, now the story seems to be the simple backbone of very normal suburban life is there might be a shooting this week. Like, that seems to have just become part of the thread. Yeah. Whereas when he was writing, it was, this is so fucking awful. Yeah. This that is the big, this the is first the bomb. big one. This that, is the one that yeah. kind of. This is the impact. This is my nuclear war. This is my apocalypse in this book. And now reading it now, it's like, well, shh, really? Yeah. More kind of grain of sandy. He's the kind of author that, I mean, he hasn't written or put anything out in a really long time. We were looking it up yeah. the other day because I was like, wait, when's the last time he put anything out? I think it was Worst Person Ever. It was his last novel. He's kind of focusing on his art career, it seems, because um, he's a visual artist as well. But um, in these specific times, I'm like, this is Douglas Copeland's playground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, his books would seem normal. His absurdist, yeah. you know, writing but would maybe, seem normal now. And thing, like... I would love, I would love to see his, what he would write right now. Like, what, <laughs> what world would he paint? Yeah for 2019. Honestly, I think you could just turn on the news and write it down verbatim and hand that in as your novel. <laughs> and people would be like, this is so absurd and weird and what the fuck? Is this Douglas Copeland? Like, it, it seems so, like Douglas so It reads like Douglas Copeland. Yeah. Like, um, how did it feel for you reading it again recently? It was... I think there was a part of me that was worried that it wouldn't age well or that I would, I you know, because I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to pick Hey Nostradamus. And I have not read mm. Hey Nostradamus. But you were quite adamant about that. Like, from the off, you would say, I'm doing Hey Nostradamus. Yeah, because was that no was the book, of, yeah. other than, you know, Rebecca as well. That was the book. I, I bought it for everyone. I, you know, it's one of those books. There's just like, read this, read this, read this. Mm. This is the one. There was a period of time where I think Girlfriend in a Coma might have surpassed it. But this was always the one. But I honestly... I, couldn't necessarily remember why. Yeah. And I remember you were reading this before I reread it, because I think I was still reading reading Lolita while you started yeah. this. And remember, I, I kept telling you, like, kind of no spoilers, because I didn't know, but then I was like, is the end, is there something in a forest? <laughs> yeah. Is it the dad and is he in a forest? So there was still that memory, yeah. like, locked in there, but I couldn't remember the details of the story at all. And so part of me had this fear in the back of my head, like, what if this book really sucks? Yeah. Because <laughs> you read it when you were, like, 16, and not everything you read when you you were 16, you know, lives good. up to your memory of it. Yeah. I mean, that definitely worried me. I'm very grateful that that wasn't the case. Because, as I said, it, it felt like visiting an old friend. It felt like speaking with an old friend. The, the voice was so familiar, and the story was familiar, but it had there had been enough distance that mm. it felt new again. Yeah. Well, they, there were moments that, because um, I, like, bashed through it in a, in a day, which I don't think helped you at all, because I was like, what the? What? And I'm like, I don't what? remember. What? And then as you were reading it, there were a couple of moments you were saying, hold up, does this end here? I yeah. think I remember. But you had, like, you were far enough away that those moments which kind of slapped you in the face a bit still slapped you in the face. Yeah. And we both had the same reactions to the same kind of people, like, 
Yeah, Allison, what a dick. Allison's a dick. Yeah, I mean, not me. There's a character. Oh, in the no, book. she's fine, but um, Allison's a dick. She's a horrible. I literally yelled at the book, which I do very rarely. <laughs> I literally was like, fuck you! I threw the book across the room. I was like, I knew you were going to do something. I was waiting for it. You're such an ass. Why would you do that? Yeah. Like having this whole rant in my bedroom. Because <laughs> she knew that someone was looking for meaning somewhere. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Theme, theme, theme. Um, when Columbine happened, I, I remember it, you know, I was in school. They, not only do people look for meaning and answers, which is what this book touches on, yeah. but in reality, they also look for scapegoats and demons, yeah. which also does happen in this book because there is mm-hmm. a period of time where they make Jason that yeah, demon absolutely. and that really colors his life um, for the rest of kind of time because there's that suspicion that was laid on him that he was involved. And when Columbine happened, one of those scapegoats, and, you know, those, there's new ones now, but what, one of them was Marilyn Manson. Oh, these boys listened to Marilyn Manson, and that's somehow his fault. Turns out they, they didn't. Yeah. They actually weren't. They're like, oh, it's violent video games. You know, it's always violent video yeah. games. Rock music or metal music. You know, these are the the causes of this. I'm like, mm. <laughs> but, And they do, in this, when they make Jason escape, one of those other things that we never... Um, find the answer to someone had sent a video um, with the shooters on it sort of giving their manifesto at some right. point mm-hmm. um, and it had been proven that it wasn't Jason and as I was reading that I was like oh I'm, we're going to find out who that is at some point we never find out who it is we never find out and so it's that it's that thing of like you're constantly you kind of put faith in as, as a reader you put faith in the fact that I'm reading this book the writer will fill in all answers. the gaps for me and he'll provide answers so you're kind of like oh, okay cool it'll come up later and it never comes up and that I think what you get from that is it was so easy in terms of the characters in the novel to place blame on something in front of them someone in front of them someone they could see physically yeah. and connect in any way because once again you don't want it to be meaningless because you don't want it to be for meaningless no and there is no answer in that who sent this there's yeah. no answer and so you have as as a person you have the choice of go with the there's no answer i have no fucking clue i'll just, just you know sit in that my whole life and it will destroy me or i'll say it was this guy yeah. because he's in front of me and i can see him and now i have someone to blame and now i have someone to blame and that's exactly what you end up doing as a reader because you don't but you don't have the choice over i'm not going to sit in that not knowing because he leaves you with the not knowing yeah you know, so you're there sort of, oh, I'll find out. I'll definitely find out at some point. Surely I'll find out. I haven't found out. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, now I just have to sit in the not knowing. It was a senseless tragedy. Yeah. Um, and some things just are. Yeah. But yeah, that that for me at that time in, in my life, because I, you know, I was a goth and I was a Marilyn Manson fan and I was super angry at that scapegoating situation and then you know I remember when Bowling for Columbine came out Mm. the Michael Moore documentary you know you see in reality some of like America's heroes like Dick Clark behaving like Dick Um, (laughs) and then the demon Marilyn Manson in full makeup Mm. backstage ready to go on stage and you know terrify some people Um, (laughs) he gave the most intelligent interview in the whole film yeah. And that's not me. That's, you know, so many people came away from that film, whether yeah. they were fans of his or not, and were like, shit. But also, it's, it's always easier to blame the person that's a little bit different. Yeah. And that's as well why Jason is easier, because he's part of that. Well, he, the poor guy, he's sort of, he's he's part of the, um, that Christian group. So that Alive. immediately, the exclamation al- point. So that <laughs> separates him from the rest of his cohort of students because he's in this group. But then he gets separated from them because he's with Cheryl and they're not, you know, as into it as the others and they're sort of falling in love and they're doing their own thing. So he manages to other himself from all people other than Cheryl. And then she's the one that's not there, but then she's the one that because of this note that she's been and becomes this sort of goddess figure and she can't, save him so he's plonked himself in the middle of nowhere with everyone saying he's not with me and if there's ever someone to find a scapegoat it's that person yeah it's you know it's that simple yeah 
So I think the the misfit yeah. in me still connects to this book, you know, even though I'm not super goth anymore. I'm still <laughs> I'm still a goth at heart. Um so yeah, that kind of exploration of that searching for demons and searching for angels and and you know, not knowing anyone really. Mm. You know, all of those things together made made this like a really important book for me and thank goodness make it still a really important yeah. book for me in hindsight, which was a relief. <laughs> it's that that lovely that thing with the the angels and D. I was I mean, because obviously you find out Cheryl's died in, what, the first two pages? Yeah, it's not a secret. Literally. But I was sort of, as I was reading it, it was like, well, she can't really be dead. It's only the first two pages. She'll probably come back to life or something. I was, like, so sure that... Oh, that she was, like, seeing she, herself from yeah, above and then going to... I was to, so sure yeah. that, like, she won't... She can't possibly actually be dead because then you're removing this whole enormous part of this story. Like, I And I was mm-hmm. so confused by that. But... It's because you don't do that. You don't like wipe out your main character in the first twenty sentences. Well, unless like, it's Game of Thrones. But. Well, <laughs> we'll come <laughs> on to that later. We will. Um, but that thing of Angel and Diva. So what he ends up doing there is create exactly that dynamic. Yeah. So yes, Cheryl is a character, but actually the bigger character is this angel figure yeah. that she ends up being, um, which you kind of don't realize until you get to the end of her section, and more so in towards Jason. So mm-hmm. actually you realize how important she was to saving his life and destroying it in the same way. So then he becomes this demon figure for a lot of it and Reg as well. And then Reg ends up sort of becoming an angel and you kind of go through these good and evil, waves of good and evil, um, and none of them are fixed and none of them are really determined by anything other than people never really quite knowing what's going on. (laughs) And and you have all the the letters from Cheryl's family that they write yeah. to Jason going back, and they're doing exactly that. It's like we went with you because we didn't know what was going on. We still don't know what was going on, but now we want to like you. Maybe you're an angel. Maybe you're a demon. We don't know. And everyone's identity is comes back to being attributed by that external thing of we've defined your identity by this because of this and because we have no clue and we need something to hold on to. Yeah. And when you look at like Reg's sort of deep connection with the Lord, like, he's doing the same thing at the same time, and everyone's kind of mirroring this thing of, I'm holding on to this person as being the be-all and end-all, because I have no fucking clue. That's... (laughs) I don't even know what more to say after that. I think that that sums it up really well. Yeah, so I guess on that kind of note and, and that note of not really knowing me, me, me clarifying the book by saying none of us know is the end <laughs> just to clarify the book ends with no one knows anything nobody knows anything and nobody knows anyone yeah and I think the perfect quote hopefully to um, sum this up which may be a running theme where we close each episode with the uh, now the we're going to be <laughs> trying to find now we're constantly while we read trying I've, to find quotes. I've started something which cannot be finished um, but yeah there's uh, basically a line right so this um, comes from Heather's section which we didn't really talk about much but I think she does tie everything together she in an important she, way she's one of, she was one of these characters for the first few pages I thought this is a complete curveball I don't know what the hell you're doing here and then yeah she ties things clear. together so so nicely yeah. Um, It's a simple, succinct quote, which I wouldn't expect anything less to end on with Douglas Copeland. But she says, and anyway, a few decades after your first kiss and your first cigarette, I don't care if you're rich or poor, life leaves the same number of bruises on you. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Plints. (laughs) Plints drop. (laughs) I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Good choice. Thank you. And thanks for reading along with us. Um, And in our next episode in a couple weeks, we'll be... We have switched it up a bit from what we probably said in the first episode. Uh, We are going to be reading A Thousand Splendid Sons with my friend uh, Sonia. Yep, so if you want to apply to come and sit in our soundproof dark room <laughs> in the height of summer in London, um, then just pop onto yapod.com and there's a, a form. You can tell us what your favourite book is. It can be any kind of book, any genre, um, anything which 
gave you that love of reading or something you go back to or something that just impacted you in um, some way for whatever reason. And if you're not in London, you can't get to London, you can come on the Skype. That's what it's called. Yeah, the, <laughs> Skype. On the Skype. We can talk to you on the um, Skype. So we can do it virtually. Um, yeah. You don't have to be based in London. But if you are based in London, we'd love to yeah. meet you in real life. Chuck some classics at Allison. Chuck oh. some Dickens at me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Chuck some things we can pronounce. <laughs> but yeah, let us know if you want to come and have a chat about your life in books. Yeah. And uh, of course, you can find us on all the social media places. We have a Facebook group. Um, so find us on Facebook, your own words. And we're also on the Twitter and the Instagram at Y-O-W-Pod, so at Yowpod. Follow us, find us, tell us what you think. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll uh, we'll read with you next time, I guess. Yeah, enjoy the next book. Cool. Happy reading. Bye. Your Own Words is hosted by Alison Dunnings and Becky Graham. It is recorded in London at the Pitch Room in Runway East, Soho. Theme music by Natasha Pasternak. Read along with us at yowpod.com. <laughs>